0: Death comes to all of us. Most of us fear it and our anxiety about death and dying stops us from thinking about it and talking about it. Would having more courage in the face of this universal human life passage help us die better deaths and live better lives? It seems appropriate in this last episode of our exploration of anxiety and courage to talk openly about the life experience that scares us the most. End of Life doula Anna Ledjard joins me to talk about anxiety and courage in the face of death. This is the Anxiety Advantage podcast. The theme for this season two is courage. We can often look at other people and admire their courage, but think, I can't possibly do that. I don't have their courage. But actually, I believe you do. I believe we all do. In the course of working on this podcast, I have come across so many people who seem to have got everything together, but who have told me that they feel anxious too. We who feel anxious, we are not alone, and I believe we all have the courage to step outside our comfort zone and live our most fulfilled lives. So in this season two, we ask, is anxiety calling us to become our most courageous selves? I'm Yangmei Ui. I'm a writer and podcaster. And perhaps I might also introduce myself as an anxious person. But I wonder, what would it be like to reframe that idea of myself and instead think of myself as a courageous person? I hope you will join me on this exploration and perhaps also see what that feels like for you, to think of yourself for a change as someone who is courageous. My guest today is Anna Ledgeard. Anna is an end-of-life doula and a trainer with Living Well, Dying Well, which supports people from all walks of life to become more informed and confident about how we manage death and dying in our communities, recognising it as a natural and normal part of living. She is also a producer of creative arts collaborative projects in schools and NHS hospitals, most recently in intensive care or end-of-life settings.
1: Anna Ledjard, what is an end-of-life doula? An end-of-life doula is a citizen, a member of a community who supports people uh, at the end of life and you, some of you may have heard more of doulas in terms of the beginning of life and midwifery. And in a sense, the end of life doula has come from that concept of caring for people, uh, within their community, not necessarily always at home and, but supported by community. So doulas very much are there to help give confidence to individuals, to families to be involved with those who are dying whom they know and love. So we do some very practical things, like we prepare people a little bit to anticipate what happens to the physical body as someone untethers from life. And just to emphasize, every death, of course, is different. But there are some signs that sometimes it's helpful for people to know about. We help people to plan, to think a little in advance, what they might like for themselves, what they might like with their families, with their friends, with others, to think about what will matter to them or what does matter to them at this really important moment in life. We talk about our values really as of simplicity. We work to accompany, not to lead, and we work by invitation. We respond to the wishes of the people who are dying primarily and those around them we bring some information, where the advice, where the funeral service, where the support services might be. And I think one of the most important things is perhaps that doulas, although we are trained, um, many of us have been there before. And actually, in a sense, that's all you need. And we probably also thought a little bit ourselves about our own mortality. And that's quite helpful if we're with, with other people, because it's quite important that we don't bring Our story into their stories. But there's no one doula situation and, and there's no one unique way of dying. And so doulas are really very flexible. We respond to what we find.
0: So this is really interesting for me because as I'm listening to you speak, I'm feeling a kind of rising anxiety and fear in myself. And I felt that in a podcast about anxiety and particularly anxiety and courage, It was important to actually bring up the conversation around the biggest anxiety that we all have to face, and there's no one who isn't going to face it. And I have to say, when I thought about it, I thought, oh, gosh, this is a little bit unnerving for me. I'm turning 60 this year. And of course, one starts to think about um, the last phase of one's life. So when I approached you, um, and even just listening to you speak, this anxiety is, is here. And I'm thinking about my own experience, uh, and my own worries about death. I haven't, uh, myself encountered a dead body other than the one time when I was around 12. My grandfather had died and there was the wake at home in Malaysia. And there he was in his coffin. He looked like grandpa but he was a bit gray and lying in the coffin and i felt really alarmed and scared so i think this is not an unusual experience and many of us feel anxious about death and dying and in particular we don't know what to say to friends um maybe whose uh, loved one is dying or who as you say have experienced bereavement in their lives uh, we're scared for ourselves our own mortality and for the people we love we don't want to think about dying. We just want to get on with life. Um, why do you think that is? And how can being
1: more well, upfront, more courageous about death help us? We've come to see death as, as a medical matter. And actually, in most cases, it isn't a medical matter. I think what you experience in your life with your grandfather is very familiar to many people. Most of us haven't seen in fact, I think there was a Lancet Commission report which said that most people can get to forty or fifty these days without ever having seen anybody who is dying or who is dead um, And actually, your experience really mirrors my experience. Many, many years ago, a very dear friend of mine died in a car accident in East Africa. And I went out with her mum straight away. And her Sudanese and Kenyan friends invited us to help them lay out her body and to perform some of the rituals that were completely familiar to them of washing and massaging and oiling. And I was absolutely terrified, and I declined. I said no, and this was my dearest friend. And I now understand, I know why I said no, and it was absolute fear that I would find it impossible to be with her very broken body, and that I I wouldn't survive that somehow myself. But actually, with time and um age and a lot of working with this, I realized that actually, I was saying no to something really important that could also have been very important in my own grieving. So I let her other friends do this. They did it absolutely beautifully, but I lost out on that. And um I think there's a deep richness, if we can be courageous, in having that connection. Those are some of the reasons. We've distanced ourselves from death. It's been slightly taken away into the hands of hospitals. And in a way, sometimes hospices, although hospices are very welcoming of family and friends and others, but actually there are some other fairly horrifying statistics about where people die today. And um, I think it was a dying matters survey which asked people where they'd like to die. And 70% of the respondents said they'd like to die um, at home or in a hospice. In actual fact, in the statistics last year, 27% of people died at home and only 5% in hospice. So that would suggest that actually there is an understanding or there is a wish for people to be at home, to be in community, to be with those they love and not to be within the medicalised system, although that is where many, many, many of us will end up.
0: And of course, in the last couple of years, because of COVID, because of social distancing and isolation, tragically, many people um, have died on all alone and in hospital or in in horribly clinical situations without loved ones nearby. And uh, I'd like to share a story that happened with my family recently. My father was ill and he was at home uh, with my mum and uh, some carers in Malaysia. And we were all over here. And because of lockdown, we were not able to go um, to be with him. He died in November 2021. And we couldn't get there for the funeral. And so we had this very surreal situation where the funeral was live streamed. And I have to say, I laugh because it's the only way that one can cope with it. And also, very sadly, my uncle in Australia his brother died around the same time. And so we had this week, and I was laughing with my cousin through our tears, this very macabre film festival of live-streamed funerals from across the world. It was so painful because my my dear old mum had to cope by herself and we we saw her through the screen and she was so upset and we couldn't be there to, to hug her. And she knew we were there watching and she turned to the camera. And, you know, a mum is always a mum. And she said to us, it's all right, children, I'm okay. And you know, I'm I'm feeling tearful now because it was so heroic of her, uh, so painful for all of us.
1: Thank goodness for Zoom. Thank goodness for these technologies, because at least there was some connection, but many people also died without that connection. But with nurses and others desperately trying to find ways that they could communicate with families. But I think what COVID has done also is to possibly because we all knew of that and because we all knew people who either had died or who were close to others who had died, I think it has actually made people think perhaps a little bit more about their death and about planning. And just to go back a bit to the the question you asked about courage about death, I, I think sometimes the fear of death isn't so much of the dying, it's of being dead, but it's dying in pain, or dying alone, or dying abandoned, or dying without love, or dying somewhere that you really, really don't want to be. So I would say the doula movement is really, really important in this, because the planning for where you would like to be and how you would like it to be is a really central part of that so that we then we can have agency although i think it is again important to say that like a birth plan we can make a beautiful death plan but things things can go wrong and it may not happen like that and we we just always would acknowledge that so at which
0: point would an end of life doula normally become involved with someone
1: who is dying or with their family Again, there's no one model for this. (laughs) So perhaps an official model would be that they might get a referral from our association, which is called End of Life Doula UK, which is growing. For example, it's still tiny in relative terms, but last year it received over 300 requests from people uh, and it has 256 active doula members. So you might receive a referral. That could be from a family who are at any point in, in this journey, it could be that they've just received for a member of a family or an individual has just received a diagnosis of an illness, which it looks as though it's terminal. It could be a family who are living with someone who is and they're in need of a little bit more support. It could be somebody who's in a volunteering situation, in a hospice. We work in many, many different ways. It may be actually very simply someone in a community whom we know about who actually has a need for just a little bit of extra help. It might even be, you know, walking the dog, doing the laundry. Doulas are prepared to meet the need where it arises. Most doulas are trained in advanced planning, talking about advanced planning. And that quite often is a point that some people would go in with. Or they might be um, people who really enjoy running death cafes or uh, death over dinner. You might have heard of some of these initiatives, but there are increasing numbers of initiatives like that are nurturing a conversation around death and dying with us, with ordinary people in our communities. So could you just explain a little bit what a death cafe or death over dinner uh, is, is about? <laughs> Essentially, it's a group of people who would meet together in a cafe often, but sometimes in libraries, in community spaces. And death cafe organisers are getting much more inventive about going to the spaces where communities go. And you would have a quite loosely facilitated cup of tea, piece of cake, gentle conversation about death and dying. And they then can go in all sorts of different directions. And the death over dinner is a similar thing. And again, you can look it up as a death over dinner process, which people could follow. Uh, But you would invite usually friends or you might do it with work colleagues and you'd probably have a stimulus. You might choose a film or you might choose something to a, a poem, a book, something to kind of provoke a discussion. And then that would be a facilitated discussion, if you like, but very loosely. But the idea is that you say to your friends, we're going to do this and we're going to talk about this subject. Uh, And we'll have a great meal, we'll have a glass of wine, and just come and give it a try and see how it goes. That sounds brilliant. Cake and food, that's that's for me. (laughs) Cake and food, very important in all these conversations.
0: So would I need to have had a a bereavement? Uh, Would I need to be dying myself? Or is it just? Oh, actually, you know, I feel I want to talk about death, uh, and I'd like to be in a space where it's facilitated
1: and it feels safe to do so. Can I come along to something like that? Absolutely, it's for everybody, and I really rather wish that they were in schools and, and other parts of the community. The people who are setting them up or initiating them will have probably either been to them themselves and been inspired by someone else's, or done a little bit of preparation, and probably will have some experience of death and dying themselves, probably. Going back to what you said
0: about uh, when a doula becomes involved in the process or in a family situation. So if maybe a family member or myself has a diagnosis or or isn't actually uh, on on the deathbed, uh, but we're at a very early stage in the situation and we're kind of going, oh my God, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. This is all too overwhelming. I could Google end of life doula UK and trying to talk to someone who has experience of this situation
1: that's beyond the medical side of things absolutely that's absolutely right and they would so you'd initially have a conversation with one of the one of the referral team who would talk you would talk about your situation they would listen and then uh, they would try to match you up with someone. Not only someone who's in your area geographically, but they're very careful also to match you up with someone who might be a match for you. Because of course, this is a relationship about something deeply important to each family and a a stranger, somebody that they don't know. And so it's very important that there is a, there is that kind of, that kind of process of, um, of matching. And yes, they would then ask you about what is the situation that you're in and where you where what you would like them to support you with and really then you you open up a conversation and the doula will then respond and it it may start with planning but it may start somewhere else you know doulas sometimes are sitting with people who may no longer be Have speech, but but families don't want them to be alone and can't be with them the whole time. So the kind of quiet presence, the quiet compassionate presence, is also a very important part of what a doula what a doula does. But I think also to say that doulas don't want to take this away from families. We're not there to do it for. And I would say that one of the greatest successes of a doula is if at the very end. The doula is actually not necessarily in the room with the dying person, but the dying person is with those that they have been closest to in life who are able to be with them in a way that doesn't feel, I mean, it will feel sad, but doesn't feel scary, that feels like a place that they can be with some confidence
0: I think that is such a beautiful picture, and having someone that you can who will walk along beside you in this very difficult process. And I'm now this is a light-hearted example, but I, I hope there is meaning in it. In that um, I, I recently bought a new Mini, and I love my Mini. Uh, but every now and then, because it's new to me, a light flashes, and I go, oh my god, oh my god, there's a light flashing. I don't know what to do. So I ring up the Mini. Uh, uh, service people. And they go, oh, yes, well, this is whatever. And they're very, very reassuring. And I feel, oh, okay, I, I can handle this. So, you know, taking it to the step of uh, death and illness, terminal illness, is a much more serious and emotional situation. But actually, in our society, we don't have that kind of person, or we haven't had this kind of person in, in the West that we can turn to. And of course, yes, we've got our GP and Uh, we've got medical people, but they are focused on the medical side. So they can talk to you about all the medical technology and medication you need and and all the sensible care from the medical point of view, but actually from the emotional, um, psychological side, there's no one to turn to if you find that, okay, you've got friends and family, but they may be going through the same distress as you. So having someone who has experience, who has been trained, who can facilitate the process and as you say, not take over, but in a way, also maybe pass on some skills yes. around managing our emotions, managing the things
1: we do, managing how we relate to each other. That seems such a beautiful thing. Yes, and I maybe should tell the story of how I came into this work because I came into this work at a very particular moment. I'd been working a lot in children's hospitals with children who were very ill and and actually some of them dying. And so I was acknowledging that actually if you're very sick, you are going to die. And I know that sounds strange, but actually with children, I think it takes a while for that journey to happen. But then something happened to me in my personal life, which was another really dear best friend who I'd known for, for since I was 18, was diagnosed finally with a cancer that was not treatable. And she was um in her 50s, early 50s, just turned 50 actually, with two young girls aged 12 and 14. And I was on a walk with her one day and she turned to me and she said, Anna, if this thing can't be healed, uh, Marcus and the girls are going to need you a help. Will you move in and help them at that point? And I remember thinking, Oh my God, Katie, what are you asking me? This is, a, but, but of course I just said, well, of course, yes. And then she said, and that's it. I don't want to talk about it anymore. You'll know what to do when the time comes. And actually, I think I did, and we did. So what I would say in answer to what you're saying is, in a sense, we all have the capacity to do this within us. We maybe have lost that instinctive bit of us, or we've given it to other people to do, but I do believe we have it. So I, the time came. Katie rang and it was clear that no, there was nothing more that could be done. She was at home and I moved in with the girls and her partner. And for the last week, we had an extraordinary week in which Katie slowly left us in terms of her consciousness and then finally physically left us but we were at home and we continued, in a sense, to do the things that were important to her in life with the children, to do the making, to do the cooking together, to do the dancing around, you know, to, to involve Katie as much as possible in that so that until the very day that she died, she was as fully engaged in her family's life as she could be. And she taught me so much. I think that it, and, and I would say that death is is a fantastic teacher for us all, if we will listen. And she taught me, I think, and led me really in a sense down this path, because after it, I thought, this is something that actually we need to understand more about. We, you know, I had worked a little bit in this context in the hospitals, but others haven't, but this may happen to them. And so a little bit of preparation to give you the confidence to be there felt to me to be very, very important. And what we didn't get right was that we didn't talk to the children until really the last four days about what was happening to Katie. And this was led by her. She didn't want to, um, she didn't want them to feel that she was giving up on them, that she was losing hope. And that felt to her to be very, very important. And I realize now actually, That it is very important to try to find the language to talk to children when parents are dying. It's the most difficult, difficult area we could possibly kind of encounter. But actually, it's really important because we're trying, I think, to protect them. And the palliative care doctor and writer, Catherine Mannix, has written beautifully and comprehensively about this. She talks about the fact that protecting them doesn't mean not telling them. And she also gives some really interesting um, ideas, which is that by the time children are four years old, they can understand that death has happened. But not until they're five or six do they understand that it isn't reversible. So they need to be told that they won't be seeing them again. And then between kind of five and eight and ten, children start to develop a kind of magical thinking a conscience maybe and they start to think about how their emotions might actually have an effect on those around them and the question then for a child whose parent is dying is did i cause it is this me so it's really important to stress that it isn't their fault so there are some things i would say are very important when we're communicating and working with families with children and it is to really open up and listen to the children, to give them simple but, but really clear information about what's happening to mum or dad. And to try and I think this is a good lesson in life for us all, to try not to use euphemisms, to use the word died, not to talk about going to live in clouds or in heaven or but use use real words, the, the words as they are. And also, it's okay for adults to show their feelings in front of children. And sometimes I think we feel we don't want to be distressed because it's going to distress the children. But actually, what we're doing is providing a model for them of what it's like to talk about our feelings. And that can only be a good thing for a child. And of course, just to be positive, to reassure and reassure. But it's the most difficult, difficult, difficult time when there are children around. Gosh, and I, I suppose also for
0: children who have had the experience of an adult who has been uh, straight talking, if you like, reassuring, showed their emotions, been totally authentic, but also allowing a safe space, they're going to grow up into adults who will hopefully be much more grounded and able to accept death as part of life. And to pass on that sense about, uh, death that is not something to be afraid of.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not a psychologist or a psycho. I, I don't know that that it would seem to me from what I've read of grief theory, it would seem to me that there is, there is truth in that. So I think one of the things that emerges for me
0: is also what do you say to someone who is uh, experiencing either a bereavement that has happened? all whose family member or loved one is dying. And and often I've heard people say, oh, my friends, this particular friend stopped talking to me or stopped seeing me mm. because they didn't know what to say because my mum was dying. I can understand how that can emerge because of our anxiety around death. What are your thoughts around or, or advice and tips around how, how do we
1: uh, be with people who are in this situation? What do we say? Yes, it's the people crossing the street. So many people talk about that and say, "I actually, I know, I know that person. I could see them crossing the street uh, because they didn't know what to say to me." I think it's just about acknowledgement. It's good to to say to acknowledge what has happened, to say that you you know, and that your thoughts are with them. Not to overdo it, but I think it's really important to, to not to ignore it, not to walk away. And actually the kinds of rituals, we've lost some of the rituals of death in our culture and they exist in other cultures in so many forms. But, you know, there used to be a ritual that we'd wear a black armband when we had lost somebody. And actually that wasn't to be morbid, it was just to let other people know that you were in a state of mourning and and that actually that was an important thing for people to know. And then there are also all the all the other rituals that, that that are around. I think little things we can do that can be really important to people, particularly if they're kind of close to us, is just to to make a note of the date that somebody has lost their mum or someone who's died, and then to just acknowledge that a year on, you remember that this was the time when they were grieving and when they were looking after their dying relative. There are little things like that that I think are just small signs that we're just, we're there. We're not coming kind of full on to want to kind of save them or fix anything, but we are simply quietly acknowledging that we know that this is a moment that is extremely important for them. So, for example, um, this are some of the situations
0: that I've experienced where I've said to someone, I heard about your mum, I'm sorry for your loss. It sounds very mechanical, it sounds and has no meaning. But um do
1: you think that it's worth saying something like that? I think we should be allowed to say whatever feels okay to us. And I think as soon as we start editing ourselves it becomes difficult. I probably wouldn't use I'm sorry for your loss, but I might I'd say I'm sorry, and I would um I think the thing is that there isn't one form of language. And sometimes I think there's actually too much language. And one of the things about doulas and being around people at the end of life is that we're really also practicing the quiet being present with people at a time when actually talking and language often is becoming less and less important to them. So I think that, um, sometimes it's a gesture. Sometimes it's sending somebody a bunch of snowdrops. Sometimes it's just doing something that makes people feel that you're there and you're thinking about them. Um, so I think there are lots of different ways. But but we get very stuck with our language, don't we? We get very stuck with the right words. And then sometimes we feel, oh, it's all come out wrong. I didn't mean to say that. So the action sometimes might be simpler than the language.
0: Mm. And, and uh, in the situation where people
1: are far away, I've sent WhatsApps that just say, thinking of you, no need to reply. I think the no need to reply, really, really important. Just, we're here. We're here. We will always be here. Where You can call on us, but you don't need to reply. But just know that we're here. It's really important. And to acknowledge that, you know, the other thing about grief, which I know we're much better at these days, is, you know, gone are the days when people would come up to you two weeks after someone has died and said, have you recovered yet? I mean, we now understand that grief, grief is with us forever in different ways. It moves through our lives in waves. It comes and it goes. Things get better. It's much uh, in some respects, but then there'll be moments that we don't expect, sometimes years from our bereavement, when something just comes and hits us and it's right back with us as if it was yesterday. And I think that acknowledgement of the time taken is really, really important. So just for all of us to take care around that and to allow grief and to really, you know, to allow people to be grieving. Would
0: an end-of-life doula work with a doctor uh, and the NHS? Or if if I were to involve an end-of-life doula, do I need to hide that from my doctor?
1: Oh, No. No, not at all. Doctors don't necessarily know who or what a doula does. So one of the things I think the doulas need to be better at articulating is what they do. So that because they can very much be, you know, we're moving into this new, um, uh, more personalised health and care, more localised health and care, particularly around palliative care. So actually, the people like doulas could be a very important part of this. There's a kind of movement towards compassionate communities, which is a public health initiative. And doulas are very linked into that model. And in that model, yes, you would absolutely work in partnership with your, with your client or the person that you're working with. And obviously, their GP, their care team, you would be part of that care team, it would be hoped. But I have had situations where a doula's been in a hospital and the doctor hasn't known why they were there or what their purpose was. And that needs then to be explained and the family would hopefully support that. But in some cases, or in one case I heard of recently, there wasn't, Abdullah a was supporting an individual without family. So then that will need sometimes some careful kind of mediation. But I think, in general terms there's a recognition that we need uh, we need to involve community more in end of life. We, you know this is not something that the medical system or even the social system can manage on its own, and we need community involvement and particularly well prepared and trained community involvement who absolutely want to work alongside I mean nobody's taking anything away all of the people around a person who's dying whether it's the district nurses the GPs perhaps it's everyone is essential and we would just be a part of that essential support
0: and so in the last few days and moments of someone dying and you uh, described that moment with your friend Katie but in your in your role as a doula what are the sorts of things that are likely to emerge you know what's happening at that point
1: and what is a doula's role in supporting the person and their family Again there is no one there is no one answer to this and I would say in brief that the doula's role is to do what that person may have planned for hopefully because they've had a relationship with this doula and their whoever is around them for some time and they have made a plan for how they want things to be in the last days of their life and we would then all together be following the plan as far as we could according to the wishes of the person who is dying. We would also be there perhaps to alert a family to some of the physical signs of what actually happens to someone when they're at this point in life. You know, people tending to move in and out of consciousness, to sleep for longer, uh, breathing patterns become irregular, uh, loss of appetite, frailty. And Just making sure that people know that as far as we know, we think that hearing is the last sense to go. So just being very careful about the environment in which that person is. But as I said, in the best scenario, we're not there because the family feels confident to be there themselves. Touch is an interesting thing. Sometimes people feel nervous of even touching someone who's near the end of life, but actually touch is a most important, important thing at this point. And some people might have said they'd like to be gently massaged or something like that, but it could simply be just the holding, the gentle holding of a hand or the gentle, just the gentle presence and also kind of in- encouraging, if you like, the silence or the peacefulness around, around this moment. Um, also, th- families may or they may not want to do this but they might want to be involved with the care of the body you know increasingly uh, we we don't often do it in our culture we hand it over to funeral directors but in other cultures the washing of the body would be a would be something that you would do as an act of love and people may need encouragement and if they want to do that most of us are trained to help with that so again there are many, many, many things that, that, that we could be there to do. But also I do want to come back to sometimes death is messy and painful and we can't get away from that. I don't want to idealise this. and But we're very fortunate we have palliative care now and palliative care medicines that can be really, really helpful in those last days where somebody might be really struggling with breath, with secretions, with agitation that is painful to them. And we can do a lot, or the the GP and the district nurse and the supporting medical team can do a lot. We wouldn't do it, but we might help a family feel that they could ask for more of that.
0: And so what are some of the discussions and arrangements that would uh, need to happen in terms of decisions around being in hospital, um, dying
1: at home, dying in a palliative care situation? What happens then? Those are all very, very different conversations in very, very different situations. But for someone, for, for I'll talk about myself, uh, I have made an end-of-life plan, which is fairly detailed, which is assuming That I would be dying quite naturally at home. So that is one situation. And there is, it's been quite fun to do remarkably. I don't think my children will mind my saying they're not children anymore. They're adults. It's opened up a conversation in our family and we now are very open about death and dying in a way that involves humor, involves creativity. And so that's one situation. The situation with a hospice is that I think, well, a lot of doulas are volunteers in hospices, actually. That's a place where very often doulas are welcomed and hospices are recognising our training more and more. And then they would be in a conversation with the family and the hospice itself. And again, as I said before, they would be led as far as possible if a person has had a chance to do this by the wishes of that person. And hospices are places where many things can happen. they Children are welcome. Families are welcome. Hospices do their best to kind of normalize the situation around around death and dying. But of course, there are very few beds for us in hospices, which is the other thing we need to remember. The hospice movement, in my statistics, I think 5% of us die in hospices, and that's just because there aren't enough beds available. In a hospital, the situation would be very different. If you need really medical support right up to the end, and that's what you want, then a doula probably wouldn't be much around. But there might be a question earlier on in a planning situation where you have a terminal diagnosis and you are having to make decisions about whether you do continue to have medicines which are um, counteracting the cancers or the disease, if you like, or you make a decision to withdraw those kinds of medicines and simply have things which make you comfortable. That's a conversation. And a doula might be involved in that conversation, but I think nursing staff would probably, and GPs and clinical people would also be involved in that conversation. But that's a legitimate thing, of course, for us to decide and for us to ask for. And should that happen, and should it be supported by everybody, then we, of course, do know of people who then bring people home at the end to die. Uh, and then a doula would be involved in the way they would be with anyone else. But I would imagine there'd also be a bit more clinical supervision so that there's no, that, so that the pain was managed at that point. So actually, I think the theme that's emerging for me throughout our
0: conversation, a couple of themes, is about communication and conversation talking about it with family, uh, with a doula, with a GP, or whoever might be involved with your your transition at the end of life, and actually communicating with yourself, being upfront with yourself and facing that, and bringing in support as you need it. That's one. And I think the other one is actually empowerment, because we talk about, in our 20s, 30s, 40s, we're in charge of our career, we want to you know, plan our career, we want to do this, we want to do that. And then, oh, it's a little bit fuzzy towards the end because, oh, I don't want to think about it. Uh, but actually, that is a very important time where we um, actually need to be empowered and we need to take charge because that's when our maybe our physical body is declining, our communication skills, the ability to speak and so on might be compromised because of whatever's happening to us. So actually planning ahead, is important. And then you can feel, gosh, you know, I'm I'm in charge as best I can. I have a plan. And actually for family. And so I'm trained as a lawyer. And uh, from the legal point of view, of course, one of the most important things when you're planning for death is your will. And uh, planning for decline is uh, powers of attorney for health and for finance. And I remember um, as soon as I had done my training as a lawyer, I was 20 something, I made my will. And it wasn't morbid. It was kind of right. I'm taking charge. And every seven years, I update my will. And I would really urge people, and this is just a little bit of legal thing coming in, that don't die intestate. Because yes, there are general laws governing the situation where you don't have a will, but your loved ones will be just in such a state because they'll, be, they'll have lost you, they'll be upset, and then they have to Try and you can't even deal with your car because it's in your name and they can't deal with your car because there's no will. And it takes so much longer, so much more chaotic. Don't leave your loved ones in that situation. I have a power of attorney for help and uh, for finances. I didn't do that till I was in my fifties. But again, I now know, well, if something happens, someone and I'm not quite dead yet, but I'm not quite there. Someone, my sister or brother can step in and there's less hassle for them to try and sort out things like the electricity bill or whatever is going on in my house or my car. Um, in a situation where I can't do it for myself. So empowerment, communication and all those different
1: aspects. You, you put it completely uh, beautifully. And actually that is, it is a really important thing. You know, the simple thing of having a joint bank account. If we would be shot out of our finances, had we not planned for that on the moment of death? So those things are absolutely vital. And doulas do take people through advanced planning because it can be a bit of a nightmare, the advanced planning process. I mean, the power of attorney, you can do yourself online, but you still have to watch. There are If you've got anything a little bit complicated about your finances, you need to kind of check that out with a lawyer, I would say. Those things are very much a part of the le- the legal side. I mean, we're not lawyers, but we can advise people where to go to do it. And you're right; it's it's absolutely it's vital. I've done it. We've done it. And I would say it's vital to do it. I say to our thirty year olds, it's actually quite a useful thing to do. We do not know what's round the corner. We do not know what's round the corner, and it's helpful. I think the the main thing to convince people is if you want to be helpful to other people, it's really helpful to other people for you to have done this. And so how much would it cost um, to have the support of a doula? Yeah, good question. Well, doulas don't earn great amounts of money. At the moment, doulas charge much the same as a quite well-paid care worker. So I think the current end-of-life doula UK hourly rate is £24 an hour. A lot of doulas also are voluntary. But I think as the doula profession is more recognised, there's an understanding that actually we need to be paid. It needs to be recognised as something which is not simply a voluntary activity people come on our training, some of whom do want to train and be doulas and go out there and be with lots of people um, and get referrals. And others are coming just because they want to feel more confident themselves with their friends, their close ones, their families, or in their village town or community. And that's absolutely fine. And they may choose to do that in a voluntary capacity. We have a forms of contract and agreement, loose, not kind of legal contracts with families, but suggested agreements that we draw up with a family once we, we, once we're in contact with them, which just outlines some of the parameters, some of the boundaries, perhaps a schedule of how many hours a week we would suggest we do. And then we review that. So we go in quite clear and that's really important. And we need to be very clear as well with ourselves, whether we are charging or we're not charging at that point. And very often, If people don't want to charge, then we'd give a donation to either End of Life Doula UK or Living Well, Dying Well Training so that we can give bursaries to people who want to do the training and can't afford it. So we've got a system of supporting our organizations and the continuation. And sometimes people are very grateful and they want to give donations. And again, we donate that into the pot to enable others to either have a doula if they can't afford it or to come on the training if they can't afford it. And what final words uh, do you have for our listeners? I think the acknowledgement that those who have died are our teachers, can be our teachers, is a really important bit of learning that that um, through life I've learned. And I'm learning every death I'm with and every doula that I teach, actually, I I learn hugely from because they bring with them their experiences of death and dying and all that that entails. And I think my other thing is that we need to practice this language. And I think it is a language. We have to practice talking about death and dying. And we have to perhaps learn to talk about it a little bit in the same way that we're now beginning more openly to talk about our mental health. And we used to talk about it, I think. In Victorian times, we talked about death all the time, but somehow we've lost that capacity. And we need to kind of think about it as something that can connect us with our communities. So yes, I'd say it's about really becoming more comfortable in talking about death and dying. And that in itself will be about improving our connection with each other and there's a real meaning as well as relationship in this conversation. It's the most significant moment in life. And I think it was Bell Hooks in All About Love who talked about this as a gift, as a language of love. And I really do believe that. And I think I want to end with um the doctor, writer, storyteller, uh, Atul Gawande, who says – you may not control life's circumstances, but getting to be the author of your life means getting to control what you do with them. And he finishes, We all want to be the authors of our own stories, and in stories, endings matter. My guest
0: today was Anna Ledyard. You can find links to some of the things we talked about on the show notes page, where there are also photos and credits go to my website tigerspirits.co.uk and click through to The Anxiety Advantage. This is the concluding episode of Season 2 of The Anxiety Advantage. I have ideas for how to shape Season 3, and I also have a bunch of ideas for various creative projects. I'm doing some research and reflection as I develop some of the ideas going forward. But the main thing is that I'll be taking a break over the summer to let everything percolate away. In the meantime, you can explore other episodes in The Anxiety Advantage if you haven't already done so. You can have a listen to the rest of Season 2. In particular, you might enjoy my conversation with comedian and author Rosie Wilby about anxiety, breakups, and makeups. And there is also the episode on anxiety. PTSD and the courage to thrive with trauma therapist Lou Bentz. Season one is also available. You'll find a sparky chat between me and Rivak Oosley-Brown about things that make us anxious. And there's also the episode featuring Ellie Russell on OCD, anxiety and empathy. Subscribe or follow this podcast on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and all the episodes of both seasons will be right there for you whenever you want to listen. These podcasts share my personal experience and perspective and I do not claim to speak for everyone who may be living with anxiety. I am not an expert and have no medical or counselling qualifications. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only. Views expressed by my guests are entirely their own and do not represent my views. If you are affected by anything in these podcasts, please seek the advice of your doctor or other qualified professional. I hope you will follow or subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's free. Also, if you have particularly enjoyed this episode, I hope you will leave me a lovely review on your podcast app. Or simply give the podcast a positive star rating. That will tell the algorithm elves that this is a podcast worth listening to, and hopefully that will help other anxious or courageous people find the anxiety advantage. Or please do share this podcast with your friends by email, WhatsApp, or wherever you share stuff. Wouldn't it be fantastic if more people could find out that they are courageous types rather than anxious types? I'm Yangmei Uy. The website link again is Tigerspirit.co.uk, and please click through to The Anxiety Advantage. You can find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram where I am at TigerspiritUK. Or you can simply Google the podcast The Anxiety Advantage and my name, Yangmei Uy. Thank you for listening and see you again soon.